This is it. The putt to win the tournament. If you sink it, the championship is yours. But on your backswing, your hat falls over your eyes. Is this how you're running your business? Poor visibility because you're still relying on spreadsheets and outdated finance software? To see the full picture, you need to upgrade to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system to power your growth. With visibility and control of your financials, inventory, HR, planning, budget, and more, NetSuite is everything you need to grow, all in one place. With NetSuite, you can automate your processes and close your books in no time while staying well ahead of your competition. 93% of surveyed businesses increased their visibility and control after upgrading to NetSuite. Over 27,000 businesses already use NetSuite. And right now, through the end of the year, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program to those ready to upgrade at NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Head to NetSuite.com slash C-Suite for special end-of-year financing on the number one financial system for growing businesses. NetSuite.com slash C-Suite. Welcome to C-Suite Radio. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. But we forget that we have the power to define them. That no idea grows from mewling striped cum to teeth at your throat tiger. Without a little help, some guidance... And a whole lot of love along the way. I am Jared Surf, and this is Here Be Tigers. Hey, all. For today's app and the next, we're going to change things up a little by sharing a conversation I had with my friend Stephen Levitt on his show, The Language of Creativity. Stephen and I both work with a number of creatives in our everyday life, so we wanted to dispel a few myths about what that can be like, from where and how art is derived, to the ways that our stories emerge, fiction or not, from the truths we define. And, like many tales, we go on a bit of a yarn at first, though it all comes together in the end. We hope you enjoy. How you doing, Jared? Uh, fighting with doctors. Oh, man. Well, I tell you what, it's great that we're finally getting to do this. I'm really excited. Yeah, no, it's been a while. Let me warm up my smoker's lungs. <laughs> I was listening to audio from an interview I'd done last year, and there's just this rich, deep baritone, and I'm going, ah, <laughs> I had that voice. I know, I and just losing the way you speak has got to be so difficult with... Putting a barrier between you and your work, I can't imagine. When I was teaching out at USC, and I had been working outdoors for a good amount of time, coaching children at a sports camp, the camp I worked at was acres, acres wide, and the folks at the far end always knew where my group was, <laughs> <laughs> because they could hear me. Yeah, it, I was kind of dealing with that a little bit with migraines, because... It's like you have all this stuff that you want to do, and then all of a sudden your body's like nope. a limitation. And I was so unaccustomed to that. It's been quite a ride trying to learn how to navigate around that and to care for myself in ways that I wouldn't think of because I'm used to working really hard yeah. all the time. And migraines. The devil with migraines is they have multiple causes. They're hard to diagnose for an individual, and treatment effectiveness varies massively. <laughs> 
Yeah, and the treatment can sometimes cause problems. That's what I just went through. I had, uh, just to update you, I was dealing with a busy week. My son had just started homeschool and he was coming to work with me. In the middle of the week, I'm solving a work problem. We're getting ready to go in and I got a text from my wife that says, a child in our daughter's daycare was diagnosed with COVID and we are quarantined. I have a class in three minutes. I'll talk to you after. (laughs) And so I quickly just said, okay. I hung up with the work problem. I said, I got to deal with this later. I told them briefly what happened. I said, okay, I'm going to go out and meditate because I need to center myself before Mm -hmm. this oncoming storm. And so my wife picked up my daughter. They got home. My son's going, why aren't we leaving? I'm ready to go. And so we had to sit him down and let him know that his birthday party at my mom's house was canceled. (laughs) And so, of course, crying hysterics. No, this isn't fair. I mean, he went through all the stages of grief um, where he's like packing his stuff up and sitting by the door like, we're leaving. Nope, we're going. And I'm like, oh, buddy. When you were a child, all of life is waiting for Godot. Yeah. (laughs) So we dealt with that. And I took my second migraine pill for that day because I'm like, I got to stay on top of this migraine. And within three minutes, I start to talk like this. Have you done like the whole EKG, the uh, CAT scan and everything to see if there's anything internal? So that's what happens. <laughs> Literally, you know, I'm slurring speech. I know it's a migraine symptom of mine, but I've never had it like this before. I start having trouble standing up. And so I'm like, hun, I got to yep. rest. So I go upstairs go. and I call the uncall doctor. And of course, she freaks. She's like, you realize you're slurring your words, right? And I'm like, yeah, uh huh. Mm-hmm. You need to call 911 right now. And I'm like, this is a migraine symptom. I know I've had this before. So I kind of tell her what's going on. And I'm just like, oh, am I going to the ER tonight mm-hmm. in the middle of a pandemic? Mm-hmm. Is it really even wise? You know, because if I am having heart symptoms, do I even want to be exposed to COVID? Like for real? Because I was pretty sure my daughter didn't have COVID, which turned out she didn't. So then... I can't get my family to drive because my wife's got the kids. Can't get my family to drive me to the ER because they don't want to be exposed to COVID, right? You know, my mom's got asthma. Yeah. My brother's like, oh, hell no. I'm not, I'm not. That's how you get COVID. I'm like, well, hey, you know, at least I'm glad you're being careful because he's a 20 something. Yes. And so I'm like, fine, I'll drive myself. So I drove myself to the ER. Thank God it was empty. They did the CT scan and it was completely clear. So I wasn't having a stroke, no risk of stroke, which was great. And then the doctor said, well, you have complex migraines. And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) I'm like, great. Okay, that's awesome. But I got the CT scan. So that happened. And then later the next week, I started having heart symptoms, but, you know, chest pains and weakness and all that kind of stuff. So I did. I had the EKG the following week. And Mm -hmm. the doctor and I think it's from stress and anxiety of just like everything happening Mm -hmm. at once. But it was the same thing. I had to call the doctor's office and be like, no, I need to talk to my actual doctor because he knows my symptoms. Mm-hmm. And then it was getting him to say, all right, we'll schedule an EKG in the office. You don't need to go to ER to do it. So I got cleared for that. Like heart is strong. I'm healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, basically just my body going, I'm out. <laughs> I'm done. You can deal with it later. Not me. Yeah. So I was just, oh, so that's what I went through the last, like I would say two weeks plus the three weeks that I was adjusting with having online school from work. I got about an hour and a half of work done in two weeks during that period. (laughs) So I'm finally getting caught up. I'm so excited to have this time with you because this just worked out perfect. So I don't know if this is because I have a friend going through a similar situation in Germany. 
It took me five years to find a cause for my migraines and vertigo. And pure happenstance, I went to the eye doctor, a new one, who happened to be a doctor in a head trauma ward prior to becoming an optician on his own. And we were doing, you know, just a regular eye test. And he goes, your visual input is misaligned. And I went, what? And he goes, yeah, it doesn't look like it's the eyeball itself, but apparently, however, it's going through the nerves and relaying from there, what you see doesn't line up between the two eyes. And he showed me this. He said, that is a likely reason for why, particularly as you're tired and stressed, you experience severe migraines and vertigo because your brain cannot figure out why the world does not fit into place. Okay, so that's so interesting (laughs) because I have amblyopia. Okay. No one can see it unless I think one time I was doing an audition class for commercials and they saw it on camera. They're like, do you know you have lazy eye? And I was like, Yeah, "Uh." because lazy eye is one form of it. In this case, I had a severe head trauma a few years ago. Oh, I've had multiple severe head traumas. I played ice hockey. (laughs) Yeah, so one of the things he said is that more often, well, not more often than not, but fairly often in severe head trauma, particularly if it's the kind where you black out or repeated head trauma, you damage the optical nerves or the part of the brain that processes that. Wow. So it's what they did. And the reason you see new glasses on, they put in corrective prisms, which basically take the light and redirect it so that what I see realigns before anything gets you know, processed or understood by a higher level of consciousness. So, so is can, that why when I take my sunglasses that are polarized, I put it on my bad eye and just tilt it at a 45-degree angle, the whole world makes more sense? That might actually be part of the issue for you. I mean, I'm not an optician, but we put on, you know, we tried the lenses. The day I put them on, I, they had to correct the first batch, but I put the second one on, I'm going, all that jaw tension I've had for five years faded. Well, most of it, the rest is stress. But more importantly, everything's where it's supposed to be. <laughs> wow. And you know, that's the thing that drives me crazy is that I know my body and it's like you go to the doctors and they look at things from such a limited perspective and they just go, well, you know, there's nothing wrong with you. I don't see what your problem is. And it's kind of hard to navigate a complex set of features that have an unknown cause. Yeah, because migraines are a symptom of many things and a lot of them are dreadful. So of course they try to rule those out, but with specialists, once they've ruled out the things they know to look for, they're going, mm, stress. Yeah, the stress diagnosis is a funny thing because what are you going to do? Just do nothing? Like, at some point, you have to make a living. And then pretty soon, the stressor is, I can't work. <laughs> so I just, yeah, I think stress is a funny diagnosis. It is. It is a cause behind a lot of things. And I've enjoyed looking at the link between neuroplasticity and cognitive behavioral thought loops and mind-body awareness connection. So the pain management aspect, I think, is a big factor for creatives because, especially because you work with artists and you know that a lot of the impetus behind writing or creating art for a lot of people is a swarm of pain management. It's an emotional outlet. So you're actually, there is that mind-body connection. There is that emotional body that we have. And what's interesting is you can sort of channel that into art. And I think that's what I've related to a lot of people who enjoy art have been sharing with me of like, hey, this art helped me process something that I couldn't put words to. So I have a lot to say about the role of suffering and creation because people have a good number of misconceptions pertaining to it. We'll get there. The 
thing you just reminded me of, I met an oncologist at one of these podcasting media summits a few years ago. And we tend to think of artists as being the ones who have to do with pain management and suffering and angst and <laughs> either drowning that through some vice or otherwise shoving it into the work. But he pointed out something fascinating to me, a phenomenon he had noticed in his patients. And particularly among the wealthy women he would treat, the husbands, as the diagnosis worsened, would more and more, would increasingly distance themselves from their wives by going on work and business trips and creating new companies, things they had power and control over. Whoa. And what he sat back and said was, I can't treat just my patient if the spouse, husband or wife, partner, right, is divorcing themselves from the hell of this life because they have now power or control over it. Oh my God. And they're, they're trying to chase that somewhere else so that they can still feel like they're providing somehow. And when I had to present, right, the business I had not yet created that is Here Be Tigers at the, the New Media Summit a few years ago, I had been working on my pitch, but I still didn't have the reason, the thing that draws people in, right? right. And I was talking to my friend Julie Sayant, who is our next episode in Tigers coming out this month. And I don't remember what she said that prompted it, but my reply was, you know, it's funny. We all tell ourselves stories of who we are and why. What we forget is that we have the power and to define them. Exactly. And that is as true for a creative, for a storyteller of any kind as it is for someone in their everyday life. So that's where I sat down, listened to myself and the presentation, the feedback, which was wildly appreciative I had after I pitched. And I said, I said to myself and to others as well, the difference I'm hearing here, right? I gave an idea, but it didn't speak just to the head. It went to the heart first. Right. And then from there, from that emotional reaction, people connected it to a goal and a want, a desire they had and a thing they wanted to accomplish. And so there's a little bit of, uh, I suppose, not serendipity, but maybe that here, or synchronicity, I guess we could say. I'm doing talks right now with my friend Nicholas Laurie, who's a neuroscientist, to dig more into the Laurie neuroscientist to dig into the actual brain work on how stories function, why they matter to us, why we rely on them, and what they do both in the neurochemical sense as well as in the way we remember and construct our lives. It's so true. Yeah, because we're always telling ourselves stories about ourselves. And we orient ourselves in the world based on our setting of what we believe are our conditions of the story, right? David Foster Wallace, This Is Water, spends a great deal of time in that essay talking about how we make other people characters in our lives and ultimately how we do that for ourselves as well, right? So here's a silly example. If I say the phrase squirrel people, who do you think of? Uh, probably the chipmunks. <laughs> right. This is the context for it. I was driving one day and there were these people who always seemed to be in gray cars who would stop at the wrong time or get into the middle of the road when they shouldn't, like squirrels. Oh, right. And the more I talk to people who lived in my environment and say squirrel people, right, they go, oh yeah, folks like that. And then once you have a character archetype, you start seeing them everywhere. Even when they're not drawing, you're in the grocery store. Who's the person that does the dumb thing when they shouldn't? And then I started to think about it and go, you know what? We get mad at all the idiots in our lives. We forget how often we are the idiots. <laughs> because it only takes that brief, stupid moment of thing we're just not mindful of or really, truly there for, for whatever reason, right? Right. And as Wallace was saying, we get to choose in that moment of time. We won't necessarily know the actual reason why, 
but we get to choose the story we prescribe, the one we use to define what's happening here and how we react accordingly. And it's rather liberating to realize you don't have to attach yourself to the worst version of the world all the time. Yes. Yeah, I agree. We have so much power over even how we frame an event in our minds, whether we're the hero or the victim in the story. I, uh, I've worked in corporate for a number of years as a consultant and an advisor. I burned out a bit on that. I tend to work a lot with creatives now, although there's a good number of creative folk in the business world, too, that I like to participate in their projects with. I'll, I'll say it this way. I am, by nature, an iconoclast, and I do not like having a large hierarchy above me. So the cubicle was my hell. <laughs> yeah. I, I had to learn in my 20s this was not the life I wanted. I remember being interviewed by Angelo Azara, this chief branding officer of OMD, for a position to work directly under him. And in the first five minutes, he said, you don't want to work for me. And I was maybe 24 or 5, and I was maybe 26, and I was horrified because this was a great <laughs> job. <laughs> I'm going, of course I do. He goes, no, you don't. Everything you like about this is not what I want to do with this position. And you'd be happier somewhere else entirely. So I'll put you in touch with the VP of HR. You know, you can talk with him. But this doesn't feel like this is the place you'll be happy in your life. And I was so, so deeply mad, but you know what? He was right. I can imagine so many people in our audience can relate to the cubicle hell. I was talking to a client of mine yesterday and he was saying, I have this temp job and it's amazing. And I'm like, well, you know, any job that I've ever had that lasts longer than six months feels like an eternity. And he goes, exactly. <laughs> I have had so many titles, teacher, journalist, PR, marketing, et cetera. And what I finally realized after that moment at the New Media Summit and talking to folks afterwards about what I do and why is that I'm a storyteller, someone who teaches, entertains, and guides the folks in my tribe. Why? To inspire a course of action, a thought, or remember something by. That's all storytellers have done culturally, historically, throughout time. Yeah. When it's such an important role, it strikes me, I've mentioned this in the podcast before, but Daniel Pink's book, A Whole New Mind, where he goes into automation and talks about how the jobs of the future are going to be right-brained jobs, and they're going to feature around storytelling because he gave this example of two bottles of wine. Well, actually, there were 20 or 30 bottles of wine that were all in the $15 price range. And basically, they're all Shiraz or whatever he wanted. And he looks at the bottles, and some have nice artwork, whatever. And he gets this one, and he turns it around, and there's a story about how these brothers founded a winery after their father died of cancer and that they, um, you know, found purpose and and healing through making wine and growing grapes and that that was their legacy that they wanted to leave and that, you know, every portion of whatever bottle went to charity or whatever. And he says, the other bottle says, this wine contains limited sulfites and blah, 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 blah. <laughs> and he said, which bottle of wine do you think that I bought? The one you connect to emotionally that That's finds right. a way to your heart. I I'm going to talk with my friend Nick about this. Nico later about this, but in terms of science, in terms of pragmatics, and this is surface level, I'm not going to go into the neurochemicals or anything. Stories are how we attach emotions to patterns of information and the things we perceive. The stronger the emotion and the more often it happens, the more impactful that memory. And how we choose to arrange those memories, right? That's the story. We, I like to think of it this way. 
we say the word remembering, and I think it's important to think to view it as the word remembering, because when you return to a thing you have in your mind, you are reconstructing and revising that story again and again, looking at it from a new light. One of the best exercises, this came from an art history teacher of all people. He said, I want you to go home and look at your family photo albums. Good. Now I want you to think about how little of your life, of your time together that represents and Mm. why you chose just those few individual beats, moments, slices, and what story that tells that is not the entirety of the life that was beheld, right? And that first class, he sat us down with a picture of Fabio and a picture of Michelangelo's David. Mm -hmm. He said, what's the difference? And someone said, well, it's beautiful classical art. It's lasted the ages. That's just a guy with flowy hair. He said, sure, but aren't they both photos representing a thing that is somewhere else framed in a certain light? to show certain things based on the mind of the person who took them at the time and what story emerges out of our perception of that, right? Because stories exist, they can exist, but they don't survive until someone else brings them to life the moment they pick them up. I, my students like to ask me, how do I, where to begin, right? How do I tell a story? And I'll give a great example. from N.K. Jemison's The Broken Earth series. This goes to your Shiraz bottle example. You read that book, it's about all kinds of fantastic contrivances in the far-flung future. But the first few pages, a woman walks into her house, finds her child dead, and realizes her husband's the one who committed the crime, mm. and decides, in her grief, I'm going to kill him, then steps outside and the world is ending, and decides, I'm going to kill him anyway. Right. <laughs> and my thought was, the, the grief was raw. It was there on the page. We didn't get to hide from any of it. And then as she looked outside, saw the world was ending, and said, I don't care. If revenge is the last thing I get, I'm getting it. Right. And I'm sitting going, okay, now I want to know what happens and why. Exactly. It's like this idea that once you open a story loop, you have to, as a human, know what happens next. You leave people hanging. It's the idea of the cliffhanger, right? You know, you open a, you open a cliffhanger and then someone's going to click that binge watch that series because there's something about the power of story that our brains are hardwired to receive. There, and let's... You guys at home think we're talking entirely about the artistic side or the humanities of this. In business, this maps onto brand identity, engagement, customer journey, your story, when we find it, and the one you make with us, right? Our story, the one that matters to me ultimately. I drink your bottle of Shiraz, but in what context, one part of my life? How do I share that with my friends? What memories do I create? And experiences do I derive from this thing you've provided? Exactly. And that is not a linear path that has a loop. Because if I enjoyed that or I didn't, if it was impactful either way, I'm going to continue on a path accordingly. Right. right? Maybe I buy the straws again. Maybe I share it with my friends. My friend and I, before we moved, we had this joke we'd run. There was a, a building next to his that had a rooftop garden, had the trellises, the barbecue, the perfectly wooden tables, the kind of place you see in all those New York City movies where the happy groups are all chilling out. They're looking at the skyline. Yes. And we said, I know this is highly illegal. This is definitely trespassing, but I kind of want to just do a barbecue on it and then they find <laughs> us and invite them there. It's like, we, we couldn't help ourselves. You created something too irresistible. Yeah. We had to put a life and a story to it. Exactly. Well, let's talk about artists for a minute because you consult with writers, particularly for a living with your company here, Be Tigers. And I'm most fascinated by how 
what drives us to <laughs> do these things. And that's part of the impetus behind the show is I literally had a listener who said she was telling uh, her mom about me. She goes, yeah, but what does he really do for a living? And so like, that's, I mean, that's the thing. It's almost like we have this thing that we have to do. And then we try to maybe reverse engineer a way to make a living out of it. And so I know you have a lot of clients who come to you and say, all right, so I I have this story and I want to be great at it. What's next? How do I do this? So tell me a little bit more about, and I want to go deep, like I want to explore even the psychology behind this, because I come from a music perspective, working with artists, helping them bring out the idea that they have, that they don't even know some of the steps they're going to take to get there, but they know they have this vision and you have to sort of almost catch that out of the air and somehow make it material. So I hear you doing that with stories. My grandmother always had this dream. The, the holy Jewish trifecta in our family, the doctor, the lawyer, and the accountant. <laughs> and she was waiting for me to be one of those three. And when I went to grad school, and you know, that's at that point you're pursuing your degree in novel, film, television, et cetera. I'm a writer, right? And she kind of understood, but not entirely at the time. And we would talk about it occasionally and passed her a few of the things I wrote. She died a few years ago, and I wasn't able to be there with because of my own injuries and illness. And some of what we talked before, in the midst of all that testing and analysis, they weren't sure if I could fly, right? So right. I uh, we had to go up to the funeral in Portsmouth, and she had this dresser drawer of things that she had locked away for after she passed. And within them was a poem she wanted to have read, one that she wrote. And I spoke to my folks afterwards, and it turns out she had always wanted to write more in her life, but had married young. She was brilliant, graduated high school at 16. You could not beat her in poker. She was so good at math. Oh, wow. So adept and astute. She would have gone into the sciences, some type of STEM work now, right? But this is 80-some years ago. Right. So Not very many people did that. No, she married a soldier, had her kids. He passed, raised family, and just kept on going with life because that's what you had. And I remember looking at that poem afterwards, wishing I had had a greater chance to talk to her because of everyone in my family. She was the first one to read what I wrote and understand it. And Mm. I think for those of us who do this for most of our life, because you can write for a hobby, you can write for the enjoyment and the fun of it, you can do it for work and still be fully, deeply, richly creative about that. It's not like there is a a tier or a grade here where the artiste is the pinnacle of that evolution. Yeah. There are reasons to engage in creative activity. Right. It can be gainful or it could be just for you. It, it, that part doesn't matter. It gets in the way sometimes, but it's not. <laughs> it, it doesn't. It really doesn't matter. I, that's the most freeing thing you can do is realize that you're going to make this art whether you get paid or not. <laughs> I have been writing since I was two. Wow. Yeah. 
We have poems from 1985 that I dictated to my family. I have books that I bound by hand and sold door to door. The first one was called And Then the Castle Died. It was a it was a picture book of this group of people, knights, soldiers, peasants, and everything else building a castle. And then at the end, I forget why, but it fell apart. And the only last line of the book was dot, 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 and then the castle died. Oh. And it's fascinating because <laughs> even at that age, death, time, and memory were the themes I wrote about. Uh-huh. I, uh, well, and a hell of a way to end a story at three years old or four, whatever age you were. <laughs> wow. I was a precocious child. I was born premature too. But, you know, there's during the AIDS epidemic, we saw friends of my family in the hospital dying of it and everything else in the city at that time. We had a friend who had Lou Gehrig's disease that disappeared from our lives, my first godmother, because she was a, a model and an actress and incredibly vain and didn't want to see anyone, want, want anyone to see her and her mind wither away. Oh. So she just vanished one day. Right. The heartbreaking. Yeah. And this is where I get back to what I said earlier about suffering and creativity, because there is this perception, right? And I bring it up now because so many of my students and my clients come to me with it. This belief that angst inspires. Right. It does not. Pain is pain. It is awful. It sucks. It's inevitable. It happens. When I went through the most recent bout of death, injury, illness, and so on over the past five years, there was a stretch for a year and a half I didn't write. Hmm. I just could not put words to the paper, to the page, and when I did, I couldn't remember why. And at the end of this, I had a dream. And I'd been struggling for a long time over how to deal with my book, which was, let's be honest, three books that I tried to make into one. Mm-hmm. I spent years Quite writing. common. Yeah. Yeah. Spend years writing and revising, but I know from the business end, pushing out an omnibus work of a thousand plus pages as your first text. (laughs) (laughs) Good luck. Yeah, especially now. (sighs) Then the question became, right, if it's three books or two books, right, even, what's that ending that compels, that inspires, that makes you want to find the next one and continue to learn why? I knew I didn't have that. So I woke up from this dream and it was so rich and so deep and so vivid I remember writing it down on my notepad, writing it down on my phone, recording it when I couldn't focus anymore on those just to capture what I could. And then I sat back and realized it had absolutely nothing to do at the time with the book I was writing. And I was <laughs> deeply frustrated because in my heart, I felt that the compulsion, the call, this is it. This is a thing here, right? Yeah. That we all feel as creatives that makes us sit down and write or draw or compose I'm using right here, by the way, as a placeholder for the means by which you express what you're trying to create. It's correct. Yeah. Could be podcast. It could be sing. It could be mm, transcribed notes on a paper. I have on my Instagram illustrations I do of the characters I write about because I need to see them at some point in time. I need to see their faces. Huh. I've been an artist for most of my life, too. So that's part of how I express what I feel and perceive. So I had this ending. It had, well, I had this dream. It had nothing in my t- at that time to do with what I thought was my book. And then here's a lesson I'll give to you because it's one I give to my students. And this isn't mine, but it's one I find incredibly useful. This comes from the humorist, essayist, and podcast host, John Hodgman. Specificity is the soul of narrative, right? I can sit here and talk about generalities, build a long day. Here's the gist of the dream. It's a king and his son 
older man, son 16, at that age, right, where you don't want to be a part of any of this. They're walking down through the Palisades as a library or some other state building into the plaza. There's the fountain, the crowds, the cars, the cameras waiting there. The kid wants nothing to do with this. Clearly, some type of coronation announcement or some other big thing has been declared. The attention should be placed on the son, the prince, but he doesn't want to be a part mm. of that. The father's still so proud, though. Mm-hmm. And as they're walking down, there's this eruption, this smoke, this burst from further down in the plaza. He sees his son, the king, and I knew even in the dream, I'm looking, I'm seeing this from his point of view, right? He right. sees his son distracted by that, and then comes the blast, and everyone's screaming and shouting, running this way and that, he can't find his son. And so he reaches out, catches him for a glimpse. And in that moment, he sees not the 16-year-old, but a five-year-old, and even his five-year-old son. And even in the dream, I had this moment of, is this a different time, or is this just how he sees his son? Oh, right. And I didn't know, but I kept on following the dream. Finally, he pushes brakes through the crowd, grabs onto his son, 16 years old, who's chiding him, you're the king, you're in charge, you have to lead them through this. And I forget the exact flow of the lines, but his final reply is, then let them see, you're my son. All, everything else he is and could have and should have been in that moment, I don't care. You're my son. And I woke up from there at dream at that moment and went, I see this. This is real. This happens in the story, but there's nowhere in the story for it to happen. So I wrestled. And this is, this is often where my customers, my students, my clients come to me, that point where they've hit confusion or inertia. I've got a thing. I don't know what to do with it. I'm stuck. I don't know where to go. I have too much, which is right. They've told me the character details aren't good. They told me the flow isn't there. There's a, there's a point where I just cannot do anymore because I'm, I am so afraid of what I will break or change irrevocably. Right. Yeah, that happens musically too. I know exactly what you're talking about. And so I do the only safe thing, which is nothing. Hmm. Because you know what that's like. Mm-hmm. Frustrating timing as it is. When it is. Sometimes you can sit with something for two years and do nothing. Your whole life. Well, your whole life. And, you know, that's funny because let's talk about Jung for a second, because when you're doing soul work, you're looking at things like your dream, which would be the inner child perspective of yourself, or in this case, the father's perspective of the son as a younger child, which is how he's emotionally connected. And to me, sometimes the way through is not an objective move. Sometimes it's a subjective shift in the way you view yourself or the way you rectify something within yourself, in the case, the story of the dream with the son who does not want to do anything with the kingdom or his father or his father's dreams. And so that internal shift has to be examined in order to shift the work, in order to change the the whole approach to the concrete artistry that has to be done, right? I'm sure you've had this when you've composed, right? You have an idea for what kind of music, what kind of genre, what kind of tone or feel you're trying to evoke. And then the thing you're creating doesn't want to live that life. Yes, all the time. (laughs) I follow story from characters. They are what define what happens if things weird or unusual or fantastic occur. That's part of the story. It's not my goal, personally, to write horror or fiction or sci-fi or fantasy. I enjoy those, but that's not what I set out to write. And so when I found the fantastic fighting to survive, to live, to thrive on the page, I kept putting it to the side. And I woke up from this dream, and I knew in that deep, raw level, this is right. I don't know why, but I know it's right. And you have to train yourself, one, to understand and hear. Well, first to hear that, but second to understand why 
and trust it. Because there's one right. field. Confusion is the first step toward clarity. It's okay to be afraid, to not know, to be uncertain. Yeah. Because if you give yourself to ask, what if you'll find why? And that's a hard place to be in. I spend with some of my students a good deal of time just working them through that part of the process, not even the work itself, but the life of being a creative. And Right, because it's scary. You know, it's funny, a very esoteric example of that, which is something that I've been learning, was a friend of mine used the example of the tarot card, the two of swords, which is the lady who's blindfolded and she's got two swords crisscrossed across her chest in an X fashion. And it kind of exemplifies that archetype of uh, uncertainty, like being lost in a fog, not knowing where you are. And the message that was given to me was, be comfortable in that. Actually, this is a good thing. Enjoy it. Learn to embrace the moment of uncertainty because the moment you do, you're no longer fighting it and you're actually allowed to discover what comes. You fundamentally cannot find what you're trying to create if you only are only willing to hold on to what you've made. Yeah. Have to. And so I did. I, I sat down for that week and I went, as I've so often done with my students and my clients too. All right, I don't know why yet. I'm going to give myself that time. And I'm not going to force it. I'm going to set aside some time to reflect, to think, to let that reside in my brain while I do the rest of my work. Because you don't have to be consciously aware of the thought. You can ask the question and you will subconsciously continue to work on it. Sometimes that emerges in dreams. I know, for instance, I write on the trail. I can reach a point where I can continue working for four hours on a sentence. My last episode was talking about that in part. When I'm at that point, I know to stop because that is me being a perfectionist and destroying exactly. my state. So I know that's my disruptive habit and behavior and how to put a, how to acknowledge and go, okay, where am I at? What do I not know? What do I trust myself to find out later on? Because I know I will. And so two or three days later, I'll find it. But in this case, it took a week. And I ran out of the shower, that literal eureka moment, right? <laughs> Grabbed my voice recorder. And I said, yes, there is no, there's a war in the past. There wasn't a kingdom, but there could have been just as well, because most of what I've written about that was from the folks who were overthrowing the powers that be. It's quite possible. What if there is or was a kingdom? What if that was the king and the prince at that time of that? What if that blast is part of their first awareness of what's happening outside, right? Keep going there. Who has that relationship in the story, Adam and his father? Were they alive then? No, but I have other characters like ones now back then. So let's just see if maybe their ancestors or something else like. Let's allow these things to be true, right? Right. And as I followed through, I found the end of the book. And when I sat down, it was deeply fantastic. There was a, a genuine fairy tale like element to it. And sure enough, when I went to Lisbon to talk to my friends for my friend Nick's wedding, I told him this with his fiance. And he goes, Thank you. 11 years. Thank you. I told you 11 years ago. <laughs> I said, I, I know, but it took me those 11 years to understand why and accept it. Well, yes. And thank you for saying that because. Uh, that is the thing that happens is like someone plants a seed, but it takes time for you to go through the journey internally 
and to realize something. And I know that as a coach, just as you know that as a coach, you might be working with a client for two years and you might say something at the beginning. They just go, huh, and then they forget about it. But then it sort of comes to fruition down the line. I got to give my wife some credit because she said things 11 years ago that she's like, you're just now getting this because someone else told you it really. (laughs) But I think that's totally true. So what was the thing? Do you remember that your friend told you back that all those years ago? I don't know if I recall the phrasing, but I had gone through what the story was, probably the second draft, I guess, at the time when I just arrived at the end of the book, which was three books. And he said, that sounds like a lot of stuff that happens to that poor guy. Do you know why? Hmm. I said, no, not entirely. And more importantly, the joy wasn't there. There's a great article, which I've shared before, by George Saunders, where he reflects on his writing. And at what point he gave up the stuff that he felt was childish and for his previous life as a writer to do and make art, to pursue only, the, you know, not to create commercially, but only to pursue beauty, to pursue the genuine art. Hmm. And what his mentor said to him was, great, but, you know, don't lose the magic. Hmm. And here's Saunders years later going, and I spent 20, 30 years writing a lot of beautiful stuff that no one liked that lost the magic. Right. And he has incredible prose, some weird, quirky, deep, and rich characters. But it's... It's very difficult to like them or in some ways to engage in the story, to find joy anywhere in it. And part of, I think, the beauty of what you and I do, of what coaches with guides do, right, is we help folks arrive there faster than they would on their own. And So instead of taking 11 years, instead of taking two years, you can come to me. We can find where you're at now. Are you trying to create your tale? Are you trying to make it come to life? Are you trying to bring it back to your tribe? Are you in your business at that point of identifying what your brand is, what your your story, the thing people will like and engage and connect themselves to is. Are you trying to figure out where that attachment happens or how they can create their own experience from that? The fundamentals of what makes for a good story don't change because as we said, we by our own nature crave and desire them. We want patterns that make sense and explain things. Yeah, humans are meaning makers. You go to... I cannot do the pronunciation right, but I think it's Goboko Bateli or something like that, Tepish, one of the oldest temples, so to date, underground found in, I believe, Turkey. There are glyphs that are ancient. They're still trying to puzzle out the meaning too. When I was in Australia, speaking to some of the local Aboriginals, they explained to me, there were stories that they told depending on what kind of life you were going to live and at what point you were in your life, at in your life. Mm. Knowledge and wisdom about the world. So somewhere, for example, that's the watering hole. Monsters are there. Don't go there. Right. If you don't need to be near the watering hole, we tell you the story that keeps you away from the watering hole. Right, right. Haunted the watering hole. Don't stand downwind so the animals can't tell you're there. Mm-hmm. Instead, of tell you a different, richer story. If you're a foreigner, this is our sacred place. We don't go to your sacred places without invitation. Please do the same for us. Mm-hmm. There are deeply pragmatic reasons they tell these stories, but they are also all true. Mm. The monsters in this case, if you chase the food away, if you spoil the water, are fear, hunger, starvation. Right, right. Broken your group because you have ruined what they need to sustain themselves on. So what what about like Santa Claus? That's a cultural (laughs) story that we tell. And it must serve some sort of purpose. My brother's 
special needs. He's on the spectrum. They most recently diagnosed him as Asperger's, and I'm laughing because he reached that point in his life where believing in Santa Claus was something that would inspire mockery. Mm-hmm. You're 18 and in high school. It's difficult to sustain that type of childlike belief the way you did as a child and have others respect you. I'm not saying there was their failure to respect you as a we're not great people when we're teenagers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> we're capable of great things and many awful because we are still not fully capable of understanding the consequences of either. And it's the blossoming of the ego self and autonomy without the empathy. <laughs> I was watching Chop with some friends the other day and I said, Do all 20 somethings think they can save the world? Yeah. And I realized I think they have to think that. Otherwise, they wouldn't make it to 30. Well, yeah, the sense of invincibility is a hallmark of teenage and 20-something, yeah? When your body is still young and healthy and you haven't touched the limitations we were talking about earlier, unless you are a rare individual who lives that path in life. Sometimes, and you have a different, a deeply different life experience by then, or someone in your life has. And uh, in my case, my father had a breakdown when I was a teenager. So he partially disappeared at that point. He's still here, but he's never been from then who he was. Hmm. And that just became life. And here I am at 12 trying to rationalize why that happens and what the effect of it is. And by see, this is maybe five, six years after the breakdown, my brother is being ridiculed for Santa Claus, his belief in, and we're all dancing around what to do about it. How did it explain it to him? And I look and I go, Santa Claus is dead. And my brother goes, he's what? I said, think about it. When was he born? How old would he have been? Hmm. He can't be alive now, right? No. Okay. But the things he wanted folks to do, we continue to do. Oh. The practice. Wow. So in that case, Santa Claus is extremely real. He is as real to us as God in terms of how much we believe in him and what that belief and how that belief affects what we do in our lives. Wow. So yeah, there does this cause us to change how we live our lives? And yes, it is real in that sense. Yeah. And you know, I mean, this you're touching upon the Aboriginal stories and cultural stories and that serve a purpose. This does dip our toes in Joseph Campbell quite a bit, does it not? So you can't see my bookshelf, but I've got everything from I've got Campbell and Young on one shelf. There's Gilgamesh, uh, Ray Bradbury. Garcia Marquez, Narnia, Lovecraft, Dahl, Rothfuss. And I look into why we tell stories and how we've been. That's always been my kind of core curiosity. Backgrounds in anthropology, too, and communication. So, yeah, spend a lot of time thinking about these things. But we still don't understand the, I'd say, the entirety of it. What we do know is that for each of us, the stories we hold on to matter. The characters are people, too. and those have real, actual, daily, lived-in consequences. You view your coworker a certain way. You treat them as a character in your life. You start to expect and perceive things will happen around them as a result of that. Then you tie into stuff like the fundamental attribution error, where, of course, anything they do wrong is likely a consequence of their own character flaws. Whereas right. anything you do wrong is a matter of circumstance because you're aware of those. Mm-hmm. And this is part of the limitations of how we tend to work as humans. Stories at their best can help us become aware and transcend the people we are in the moment we are, we are that. 
at their worst, they are lies we hold on to because they satisfy a need we have. I think it's important to be aware of how powerful the act is because you can just as easily make a tribe out of people who want to share and create and provide an art space for folks in a community as you can for conspiracies, for, well, just look at the news right now. Yeah. You can just as easily make a tribe out of police as you can the people protesting. Yep. And there's been a lot of time and research put into why we have the blue wall, right? Into And I didn't even know this at the time, but I was interviewing a, a guest a while back, Andre Rodriguez, and he said, you have to be mindful of the first and many of those initial police forces were former enforcers on plantations. Mm-hmm. The history has always been messy. Mm-hmm. Motives have always been at cross purposes and complicated, or in some cases, not according to what the expectation is. You listen to these seminars where I'm not going to soapbox here, although I will a little. But yeah, I do think it's deeply problematic when you train a civilian peacekeeping force to perceive of civilians as a threat. Yeah. When you turn yourself into a warrior, into a hero in the story of your life, then everything else becomes a challenge to you. Right. And you become justified in your response. Mm -hmm. And that story is a deeply dangerous one, as much as it can inspire and pull you out of the worst moments in your life. I was at the PodFest earlier this year, shortly before the quarantine. And I sat down next to this fellow by happenstance, and we were talking. And he said, you know, the thing I came to realize that was passed to me by other people I was listening to, I'm not in my business the hero of my work. I'm the guy that helps my people, I'm the people I'm working with, become heroes in their lives and their work, what they do. Right, you're the guide. Yeah, stepping outside of my own ego here. The story of my business, my money, my wealth, my income, my success, my survival, all important things, because out of that, you're providing for yourself and others too. So not to denigrate any of that, there's a reason those stories matter. Yes. We hold hold and attach ourselves to them in the same way that we as populations identify with national pride and attach our sense of selves to that. And thus, when that feels threatened, so too do we. We find meaning and purpose, clarity, purpose, and drive by the stories that we allow ourselves to be defined by. And that's the problem. Too often we do allow ourselves to be defined by the stories we live in. A good story can excite us, yes. But the best ones, fiction or not, compel, inspire, or drive us toward the hope that we need for a better life. Remember, you don't need to know everything right now, but you do need to write. So make sure to like, review, and subscribe to us at Here Be Tigers. And until next time, take life by the tail. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.